This is exciting. I think this is this one and the next one are my favorite ones. If I could have favorites for my sermons, <laughs> the first two were just like, nah, we're just getting started. We just have not gotten there yet. And this is, I hope, going to be something that will be engaging for you because scripture, when properly understood, is some of the most exciting. It is the most exciting thing to to understand and to listen to when you really understand it. And it's captivating. It's almost like movies. Um, and more on that in just a moment. But time. Time has fascinated people for a long time. No pun intended. And today I think it's no less true. It's actually one of the most intriguing concepts that we see in film. For instance, some of the most popular films that we know explore the possibilities of time travel and what the implications might be, such as the classic 1985 feature film, Back to the Future. Yes, which presumably, I would say, set the standard for time travel films. And then, of course, more recently, there was the 2009 reboot of the Star Trek movies, which based its plot on traveling back in time, creating a whole new storyline for the same characters. Or some of you may have seen this one, the mind-blowing 2014 Christopher Nolan film Interstellar. Love it and hate it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's very ambivalent of you. Uh, and this one did the best, I think, of any film in researching our limited knowledge on the effect of black holes on time. Use some creative license to fill in the blanks. And I totally agree with you on this. I love it and I hate it. There's something about it. I'm just like, that was odd. But kind of cool. Um, it was really intri- there's an intriguing part of that movie that I just absolutely love and then it's part of it I'm kind of like this was so weird <laughs> but then of course probably the one that you're probably most familiar with is the 2019 epic conclusion to the Avengers films the Avengers Endgame in which oh we're gonna, we got yeah. some claps for that in which the superheroes explore the possibility of using time to rewrite the events of the past whatever the case Time is one of those concepts that captivates the human mind. It's simple enough to be recognized by a child, and yet it's complex enough to stump the greatest scientists and philosophers. And yet it's intriguing to anyone who desires to explore its steps. Time is common to every human. To be human is to acknowledge the existence of time. That's not just a philosophical statement that I just kind of like came up with. That's actually what the Bible says. Turn your Bibles over to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I'm going to start by reading to you a verse in here before we actually engage the text directly this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11. Verse 11. Everything. God, or it says he, but it's God. Everyone, every, everything God has made beautiful or lovely or appropriate in its time. Even eternity he has put into their heart. The word eternity in Hebrew is literally the term age. Age. In other words, God has placed in man the ability to conceive of long periods of time. God also gave 
man the ability to meditate upon time and eternity, thinking about unending time. This is something that God has not given to the animal kingdom. Animals do live in time, we know that. They have memories, but they do not meditate upon time in a sequential order like humans do and make plans accordingly. To be made in the image of God is to be a steward of time. It's to be a steward of time. And we will look more into that today. In fact, that is the subject of the next chapter. Chapter 3 is all about time. It's all about time. And as fascinating as time is in movies, I trust you will find it's just as fascinating here in Ecclesiastes. It really is. Solomon's wisdom about time is very deep and instructive for us. Now, as you recall, in the first two chapters, Solomon explained his observations about life. We see that up here. And then in chapter 2, his experimentation. He observed every facet of life and found it to be fleeting. It's vain. It's meaningless. It's temporary. In other words, it might provide some enjoyment, but it will not last forever. And after a lifetime of hard work and mental exhaustion, Solomon nearly despaired because all of his life's work led to absolutely nothing. But at the end of the second chapter, he turns a corner. We saw this yesterday morning. He turns a corner. He uses the words eat, drink, and enjoy. And because of those words, we know that he's reached his first big conclusion. And for the first time, he factored in God in a positive way into his conclusions. Life is a gift from God, he said. It's not going to last forever, but it is something that we can enjoy, and so therefore we should enjoy it. But we should enjoy it within reason. We shouldn't throw caution to the wind. We should be mindful of our enjoyment and be careful to avoid sinful behavior. So that's his first conclusion. And he's going to add two more conclusions before we end this morning. And those conclusions will take what he said here, and then he's going to add to them as he goes. Also, before we dive into chapter 3, don't forget the big picture, that Solomon is writing a message to the world to remind them that he has failed them. He is not the Messiah, and he will not unite the world in peace, after all. And his investigation into life without God's revelation is ultimately meaningless. And now... After giving the world his first conclusion at the end of chapter 2, he's going to turn his attention to time. And the question is, is what role does time have to play in all of this? And so I want to start reading with you here in chapter 3 and verse 1. So read along with me as I read here. Probably some familiar words for you. Maybe this is a passage you've been wanting to get to. Here in Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verse 1, For everything there is a season, and a time for every delight under heaven. A time to give birth, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal, and a time to break down, and a time to build. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. 
a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to, literally it says, hug. Time to hug or time to embrace. And a time to be distant from embracing. A time to seek out and a time to lose. A time to watch or guard and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be quiet and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. It's kind of a beautiful poem, isn't it? These are opposites. You probably saw that in here. They're opposites. It's what nerdy people call a merism. Merism. M-E-R-I-S-M. Merism. M-E-R-I-S-M. You know, if I say good, you say? Bad. Yeah, good. If I say wrong, you say? Bad. If I say sit, you say? Bad. If I say open, you say? Yeah, see, you know opposites. And that's exactly what's going on here. These are opposites. And the idea with these opposites, which is called a merism in Scripture, you see this often, it's that there's a time, for instance, for people to be born, and a time for people to die, and the idea is, and everything in between. That's the idea. It's not just the extremes. It's everything in between as well. There's a time for love, and a time to hate, And everything in between. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance and everything in between. But there's a, I think there's a troubling misunderstanding of this passage that I need to talk about a little bit. Because I think a lot of people take these words to mean there is a time in which each one of these things should be done in life at the right time. And perhaps you could find, maybe you could find a situation in every point in life where that is true. But that is not Solomon's point. He is not saying that you should find a time in which all these things should be done in life. Instead, he's telling you that this is the cycle of life, whether you like it or not. That's what he's saying. People are born, people die, and everything in between. There's a time where each of these is going to happen in your life. There's a time where things are planted and a time when they're uprooted. There's a time when people are killed and there's a time when they get better. There's a time when people throw stones and a time when they gather stones. And Solomon's point is not that you figure out when is the appropriate time to do each of these situations. His point is clearly communicated to us in verse 9. Look at verse 9 there. What is the profit for the one who is doing these things and that which he labors? What's the profit of it? In other words, life is going in circles. And you will find yourself one day celebrating a newborn baby and then saying goodbye to a loved one at a funeral. You will find yourself mourning a terrible disaster that has touched your family. And at other times, you'll be dancing and enjoying sweet times together. The problem for Solomon is that this cycle doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. Remember, it's the grand carousel of life. It's those circles again. This poem, it's it's beautiful, yet it's also very nauseating for Solomon. It's nauseating. 
becomes almost too much to read all the way through. I mean, halfway through the, the poem, as I was reading it, you may have been like, I, I get it. I get it. It's back and forth. This, then that, and this, and that, and this, and that, and this, and that. And it almost goes for too long. That's intentional. Solomon wanted it that way. Solomon listed 14 of these going back and forth to make you feel the wearisome nature of things going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. It's going in circles. It's going in circles. It reminds me of Frodo and Sam in the two towers of the Lord of the Rings. When they're lost in that maze of Imin Muil, right? You know what I'm talking about? Where Sam says to Frodo, hey, this seems strangely familiar. And Frodo says, well, it's because we've been here before. We're going in circles. I mean, you can see it on Frodo's face, right? (laughs) And honestly, like, that's kind of the idea of what Solomon is feeling. Life does this. It takes you in circles. And you will experience every up and down of life if you live long enough. And so the idea is, what's the point? If you get nowhere, if you're going nowhere, what's the point if you can't get out of the maze? What's the point? Solomon has some insightful things to share with you about this. So let's look at this in verse 10. Let's look at this in verse 10. Verse 10, he says, I have seen the task which God has given to the sons of men so as to occupy them. Like we just read in verse 11, everything he's made beautiful in its time. Even eternity he's put in their hearts. In other words, Solomon's saying, okay, I've observed every situation in life. Everything is going to happen to us at one point or another. That's true. And everything that happens has an appropriate place on the timeline. And that's why he says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Uh, The word beautiful in your Bible might be the word appropriate. It might be the word lovely or, or fitting or something like that. In other words, every situation fits snugly into place on the timeline so that the circle can continue endlessly. It just fits perfectly, so it just keeps doing this cycle. So you can see how everything is really neat and orderly. You're like, oh, that's really nice. But that's not what Solomon's saying. He's saying, this isn't good. I'm not really glad about this. Instead, everything fits neatly so that it continues in this cyclical motion that goes nowhere. It goes nowhere. And then Solomon says, God has put eternity into your heart. He's put eternity into your heart. In other words, God has given you the ability to contemplate never-ending circles of time for all eternity, which can be very troubling if you're lost in the maze. Will this ever end? Will this ever end? Will there ever be anything new? Will there ever be anything new? And then he says at the end of verse 11, so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning until the end. Oh, this is such an important point. You got to be listening here. You need to understand this because we're actually going to see this at the end of the sermon too. Why is God sending everything in circles? Why is God doing that? That's what Solomon really wants to know. 
Why does time never stop the cycle? And here's, here's his reason. Because God does not want you to be able to predict what he's going to do next. That's Solomon's point. God orchestrates life in a maze-like, unpredictable series of circles so that you can't figure out what's going to happen next. Will someone be born tomorrow? Will someone die tomorrow? Will it be cold tomorrow? Will it warm up? Will my football team win? Will they lose? Will I pass my math test or will I fail it? Or perhaps for people in more desperate situations, will we have food tomorrow? Or will our cabinets be empty? Will the government find out that we're Christians and put us in jail? Will the tyranny be lifted after all? We can't figure out what God is doing. What's he going to do next? That's Solomon's point. And not only can't we figure it out, (laughs) this is what boggles his mind. God wants it so that we can't figure it out. Why? Why would God want that to be the case? That sounds kind of cruel. But this is the unexpected wisdom from Solomon. This is the unexpected wisdom from Solomon. God doesn't want you to figure it out. And it's not quite what you would expect him to say. And nevertheless, perhaps the most profound insights from Solomon lay before us. So look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them but to enjoy, to rejoice, to do good in one's life. And also, every man who eats and drinks and sees good in all his labor, it is a gift from God. Wait, 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 are you hear those words again? Do you hear them? Eat, drink, enjoy. What's he doing? He's giving us his next big conclusion. And this one's a big one. This is a big one. In verse 13... He's kind of rehashing his first conclusion from chapter two. He's like, hey, I mentioned this already. You can enjoy life. We can eat. We can drink. It's a gift from God. He already said that. But now that we factor in the cycles of time, he says, I'm going to add another conclusion to my first conclusion. Look at verse 14. This is incredible. I know that everything God does, it remains forever. There is nothing to add to it. There is nothing to take away from it. But God has done so. Why? That they should fear him. You could say that men should fear him, but literally it just says that they should fear him. In other words, here's the second conclusion. Eat, drink, enjoy life while you have it. But God has set up life so that you will experience both good times and bad times. And you can't change that. You can't change that. You can't add anything to what God is doing. You can't take away from anything that God's doing. You can't stop God and his plan. And God makes it go in this maze-like cyclical pattern. So that you can't know what's going to happen next. And all of that, why? Here's his big point. So that you would fear him. So that you would fear him. That's why he does that. 
So the second conclusion, if we boil that down, is enjoy life, but fear God, because you can't find out what he's up to. It's a strange conclusion. Not quite, perhaps, what we would expect. And there you go. Our first instance of this central theme in the book, to fear God. To fear God. Fear him. Be frightened by him? No. Be terrorized by him? No, it's not that. Fear him. To let God be God. And let what he wants to happen, happen. Whether it's good for you or disaster for you. And to wait for him to reveal what he's going to do next. That's fearing God. That's fearing God according to Solomon. I'm going to leave it there for now because the book will explain this further. We're going to see this more today. We must move on. Look at verse 15. That which is, already it was. And that which is to come, already it is. But God is seeking that which is pursued. Now, I I know that may sound a little different than what your translation says, but that's literally what it says. Uh, Your translation may say, but God is seeking that which passed by. But the word is just literally pursued. Solomon's saying basically in this verse, verse 15, Solomon's saying nothing's new. Nothing's new. Hey, everything's going in circles. If it's happening today, it already happened long ago. We've already seen it happen before. God is making it do that. It's not happening by accident. God is doing that. He's making it go in circles. And then he mysteriously says at the end of verse 15, God is seeking what is pursued. And you're like, what does that mean? (laughs) And it took me a little while to dig into that. Like, what does it mean for God to seek out that which is pursued? I don't know exactly. It sounds mysterious. But I think the best way to understand this is that God is making history move like a dog chases his tail. That's basically how history is working, and God's wanting it to work that way. That which has already been done, that's which already been pursued, he's making it go and, and seek it out again and do the same thing over and over again. Everything's moving in a cyclical way. God is seeking what is already pursued, and so history pre- repeats itself over and over and over and over and over again like a dog chasing its tail. And it's kind of cute, too, so I thought I'd put it up there. Now, as we continue on in this sermon and the next sermon, I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit. Uh, and if we had 10 hours together, I would read every verse to you, and we cover every detail and every nuance. We just don't have that time, okay? I do want you to actually get home after this retreat. So I'm going to start summarizing sections and point out some key verses along, along, along the way. So in the final verses of chapter 3, verses 16 all the way through the end in verse 22, Solomon reasons to himself this. Okay, so everyone experiences all the ups and downs of life. You know, you're born, you die, you, know, you plant, you uproot that was planted. Everything goes back and forth, back and forth. Everyone experiences all the ups and downs of life. If you live long enough, you will see... Births, you will see deaths, you will laugh, you will weep, you will see war, you will see peace. If that's true, then God seems to be judging people, not based upon whether they did a lot of good or a lot of bad, but very arbitrarily. There's no rhyme or reason to what happens to people. Everyone experiences suffering. Everyone experiences joy. It doesn't matter if you did good or bad. 
Everyone's going to experience all of these things. So that means that righteous people, good people, relatively speaking, will experience really bad things happen to them in life. Yes, they will, just like bad people will. Because they're going to experience both the ups and the downs, aren't they? They're going to experience all of it. That's what verses 16 and 17 are talking about. So then Solomon basically says in verses 18 through 20, man's no better than an animal. Man's no better than an animal. Because animals experience good times and bad times. And they don't even have a concept of good and evil. So if we're experiencing good times and bad times, and we do good and we do bad, but animals don't necessarily know good and know bad, but they experience the same things. We're nothing better than an animal. So he basically says, so man is like an animal. He experiences good times and bad times, no matter if he's been good in his life or not. And just like all animals, all people die too. We die like animals. Good people die, bad people die. So it seems that God is simply toying with man, teaching him, hey, you're just an animal. You're just an animal. It almost sounds evolutionary, doesn't it? Solomon is, ex- is thinking through the reasoning like an evolutionist would because he hasn't fully factored in God yet into the equation. And here's the really important verse in verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of the sons of men go up, in other words, to heaven, and the spirit of the animal or the beast is going down into the earth. In other words, they just die in the grave and then there's no afterlife. If you ask the common unbeliever out there, I think today, most people, whether they're Christian or not, actually believe that there's some kind of afterlife. I think most people actually believe that. Most people believe that man is distinct from animals in some way, that man somehow has a soul that continues on after he dies. This is just, I think, sometimes just assumed by people everywhere, whether they believe the Bible or not. And I think people in Solomon's day assumed that too, whether they believed the Bible or not. But Solomon's saying, if we look at how everything is going right now, people suffer, people die, animals suffer, animals die, then if you're just looking at the evidence in front of us here, then what's the difference between a person and an animal? What's the difference? How do we know that people actually have souls? How do we know that? That actually continue on after you die. For all we know, they just die like animals do. At least according to what we can see here and now. So then in verse 22, Solomon rehashes his conclusion from earlier in chapter 3. And he basically says, yeah, man should enjoy his life and his work because that's all that we know for sure that he's going to enjoy. Man does not have someone who can come from heaven and say, hey, I've been to heaven. Don't worry. People have souls. They can actually go to heaven. It's actually possible. Solomon's saying, I I don't know of anyone that's done that. And so he says, enjoy life now because that may be all that there is. Now, when you hear that, you're probably like, that doesn't sound very biblical to me. And that's okay. That's good. You should reason that way. But Solomon is not finished with his book. He's not finished. 
He's going to return to this idea at the end and come to even a better conclusion. Okay, but we're going to have to wait for that. But for now, that's how chapter 3 ends. And the section on time seems quite negative and unbelieving of eternal things, doesn't it? But we're going to continue into chapter 4 and we'll see where Solomon will take us and go with us. So chapter 4 is all about alliances. Chapter 4 is all about alliances. Life is hard. We've established that pretty well now. Life is hard. And having others around you can help you in this hard and confusing world. And there are two enemies that Solomon directs his attention toward that he believes alliances help to defeat. The first enemy is oppression. It's oppression. Not only do people experience all the ups and downs in life, but there are some people, even good people, relatively speaking, who experience a disproportionate amount of downs in life. Like the percentage of downs is way higher than the percentage of ups. Some people who are honest, decent people suffer greater than others. And that's what verses 1 and one through 3 talk about. And the suffering weighs on Solomon so much that he concludes in verse 3, better than both of them is he who did not even exist at all, who has not seen the work, the terrible evil work, which is done under the sun. Now that sounds pretty uh, extreme for Solomon to say, but that should actually make sense because if your life is full of unending suffering, it never stops and you suffer day after day after day, oppression, pain, then Solomon concludes, it's better perhaps that you never existed. What was the point of existing if it's just all pain? And this is actually what Job said at the beginning of his suffering in Job chapter 3, verse 3. May the day in which I was born perish. I wish I had never been born. And the night in which a man, it was said, a man is conceived. Boy, that's true oppression. You'd rather not have been born than to experience a life of never-ending suffering. That's what verses 1 through 3 are saying in in chapter 4 here. And then in verses 4 through 6, there's a second enemy, and it's competition. So there's oppression in verses 1 through 3, but then there's a, a competition in verses 4 through 6. And if you're going to get ahead in this world and find any kind of success in this world, it often requires you to compete against other people. You know participation trophies? Yeah? They're hilarious. Everyone who participates in the event gets a trophy. There's no winners and losers in this game. Everybody wins. Well, that's not how life works. It's not. People want it to work that way. That's why young people your age are so into concepts like socialism and communism. Because they actually believe that everyone can win and should receive the same reward regardless of what they've done in life. Or haven't done. But in a sin-cursed world with scarcity and struggle, life requires hard work, and often there's a competitive nature to it. You have to compete for the next job. Maybe you'll get it. Maybe you won't. 
You have to compete in sports for a spot on the team. Maybe you'll get it. Maybe you won't. You have to compete to succeed at many things in life. And so Solomon realizes that one of the few and only ways that you can find some kind of success in life is to beat out other people who are around you. But that's not good for Solomon. It's not good. For a lot of people in this world, that is good for them. They like that because they're like, I can beat other people. I can do it. And so they compete. But for Solomon, that's not good. And I love this about Solomon because he's not trying to find an answer for an individual. He's not trying to find an answer for himself. He's trying to find out a solution for everyone. I think that's wonderful. He's representing you and me. Competition ensures one winner. Solomon wants a solution for all, for everyone. And that's why in verses 7 through 12, chapter 4 here, he finds not really a full solution, I would say, but it's kind of more like a salve that takes the sting out of the problem. And that's alliances, alliances. People allied together can prevent oppression and competition. When you ally together, you avoid oppression and uh, competition. Solomon observes a situation in life in verse 8 where a man can work all his life, but he has no son and he has no brother and he has no family relative to pass off all of that work and success to. And so that gets Solomon thinking, you need other people in life. I mean, at bare minimum, they will at least help carry on your legacy when you die and you can pass off your work to them and you can see your children and your grandchildren and, and there's a legacy there. But also, not just for a legacy sake, he says, you need other people in life because like, what if you fall into a ditch and you break your ankle? You need someone else to help you what? Get out of the ditch, right? Otherwise, you're in trouble if you can't, If you're just by yourself. Also, if you're on a big job that requires you to sleep outside, having others around you can help you stay warm. If you have someone attacking you, it's better to have an ally to help you fight against that person, right? Than to be by yourself. Your odds are better if you retaliate against him as a group than if you are left to fight him on your own. And that's what verses 9 through 12 specifically address here in chapter 4. It's true. Having others around you means that you don't get to have all the wealth to yourself. It does mean that you have to share your food. You share your drink with them. You share your money with them. But the benefits of having them around for protection and having them as allies far outweigh the costs of having to share your resources with them. That's what Solomon's really thinking through. And so then in verses 13 through 16 at the end of chapter, uh, chapter 4, Solomon backtracks a little bit on this. It's really interesting. He says, okay, yes, I've just made the case. Alliances are good. Having other people around is really helpful for us. But he realizes that people are fickle. They are fickle. They too quickly can jump onto bandwagons and they don't stay loyal to you. For instance, he gives a scenario where the people want a young boy who's super poor and who's never been king, and they want this little boy to become king, even though this other older king has been king for a long time, but he's kind of stuck in his ways. And so they just like, let's get him out of there and let's get someone new in. 
It's like, okay, well, I can understand that. That makes sense. And yet, after a while, the people turn on him. They turn on that boy for another young boy. And so Solomon's saying, yeah, alliances are good. People can help you, but people are fickle. They are flawed. They can turn on you quickly. I mean, as Ferb once said, ah, the public is fickle. Yeah. I knew I'd get some fans out there. Well, Ferb, you're right. The public is fickle. Have you ever heard someone say, you know, man, uh, man, uh, work would be awesome if it wasn't for the people I had to work with. (laughs) Solomon kind of agrees with that. People are disloyal and they can be challenging to work with. But it's also true that you need people in your life, don't you? You need people. You need allies. So chapter 3, we talked about time. In chapter 4, we talked about alliances. We've covered these two chapters now in full. Alliances are good, yet there are limitations and challenges with people. And now we're going to enter into chapter 5. And oh, this is a good one. This is a good one. It's all about waiting. It's all about waiting. I think this is one of the most critical points in the book of Ecclesiastes. So pay special attention to this. Read with me as we get started in verse 1. Watch your feet or your steps when you go to the house of God, even to draw near to listen, than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. I want you to listen what Solomon's saying there in verse 1. Watch yourself when you come before God. Watch yourself. Don't be quick to speak. Have, have you ever thought about watching your steps before you come to church? I think so often we can get caught up into thinking, today I need to speak to God and make things right with Him at church. Or sometimes we mindlessly sing promises to God at church that we haven't really thought through the implications of those things. But Solomon is saying, be careful when you approach God. Be careful. Because we often approach him way too hastily. Way too hastily. Look at verse 2. Do not be quick with your mouth. and Do not be hasty to bring up a matter before God. Why? Because God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Why should we be careful when we come before God? Why? Because you are man. Because you are man. You are on earth. He is God. He's in heaven. He's way bigger and more powerful than you might think. Do you think you really understand what God wants from you? How easy it is for us to fill in the blanks for God. God, I know what you want from me. And we begin to dictate what God wants from us. And by doing that, we put ourselves in God's place. It's like what James 1 verse 19 says. Let everyone be quick to hear and slow to what? Speak. That's what Solomon's saying here. We are often too quick to speak for God and not listen to him. 
Solomon is calling us to listen to God. He's calling us to wait for God to speak. Have you ever gotten in trouble and you get caught? Maybe doing this. I don't know. When you were little. Hopefully it wasn't like last week or something. And your parent is there and your parents like hasn't said anything yet. And they're like, hmm. And they're musing to themselves. They're trying to determine your fate. (laughs) What's going to happen to you? And there's this uncomfortable silence. And then as a kid, you were like, you just start telling your mom and dad how you should be punished. Now, this is how I should be punished. You start speaking for your parent, and then your parent gets really mad at you. Why? Because you usurp their authority by dictating the outcome for yourself. You stole what was rightfully theirs as the parent. You stole their authority. Now, imagine God when you come to him and you begin to speak for him. You begin to speak for him. God, this is how things are going to go. I'm going to do this for you and you're going to be pleased with that and also make things easy in my life and make me happy. That doesn't make God happy. Why? Because you're dictating the show for him. You're dictating the show for him. You're telling him how it's going to go. You're telling him how it's going to go. Solomon says, no, I've learned something really important in this investigation. We don't get to dictate to God how things are going to go. He dictates to us how things are going to go. Even if it makes no sense to us. He's God. He's the king. You're just the peasant bowing before his throne. You don't get to speak before you don't need, get to speak to him. You must wait for him to speak to you. And whatever he says goes, even if it means hardship for you. That's what Solomon's saying. Now look at verse 3. Verse 3. Solomon basically says in verse 3, the more you labor, the more you labor, the more that you dream. The more you dream. You're like, what are you talking about, Solomon? It's probably the idea of the more you daydream, the more you daydream. The more you labor, the more you daydream. It's like when you're in school and you're tired of focusing on work and you begin to daydream. So what Solomon is saying is, as easy as it is to daydream when you're bored and stressed in school, so it's just as easy to speak words before God mindlessly when you shouldn't do that. That's how easy it is to speak before God. Stopping the mouth in front of God is very hard to do. Why is that? Why is it hard for us to stop our mouths before God? Because you want to be in control, but you're not. You're not. You're not in control. And you know that God is in full control. And you want to control the outcome. In verses 4 through 5... He says also, pay back your vows to God. Pay back your vows. Boy, how easy it is to make promises to God mindlessly, isn't it? God, I'll dedicate my life to you if you just get me this one thing that I've always wanted. In fact, not only pay back your promises to God, Solomon says, actually, you know, just don't promise anything at all. Just don't promise anything at all. Because promises like that are usually self-centered and not serious about fulfilling that promise anyways 
Our mouths can get us into so much trouble, making promises that we don't intend to keep. And then God has every reason to be angry with us and bring disaster into our lives if necessary. And that's what verses 6 and 7 are talking about. So rather, Solomon brings it all together into two words at the end of verse 7, which you need to know, and they are familiar, and it is fear God. Fear God. So in other words, you bring it together into chapter 5, how, how is he tying that in? He says, a man basically who speaks too quickly before God is not fearing God. A man who speaks too quickly before God is not fearing God. So then, what does it really mean to fear God here? What does it mean to fear God? A man who lets God be God and submits to his will and waits for God to speak for himself. That is a man who fears God. Solomon has learned something very keen. God has designed life often to be ambiguous and impossible to figure out on your own. Why? So that you will fear him. So that you will fear him. So that you will let him be God. So that you will let what happens happen, even if you have to encounter disasters in your life. Let God determine your fate. Let God determine your future. Wait for him to speak. Wait for him to act. That's what fearing God means. And that's where we find ourselves in the chiasm of Ecclesiastes. Another call to fear God. And so now turning our attention to the rest of chapter 5, we're going to look a little bit more here at what he has to say. Verses 8 through 9. Solomon admits there are some really powerful people in this world and they oppress the poor. They oppress the poor. We already talked a little bit about oppression, chapter 4. Why does injustice and corruption and wickedness and oppression continue on and on and on against the needy and the unfortunate? Why does that have to happen? Why does that even happen? Solomon says in verse 8, it's because there are some very powerful people in this world that all have each other's backs. They all have each other's back. If you have my back, I have yours. And then they oppress the people underneath them. And they protect each other up on top with power and money. And you're like, man, that sounds so familiar. It's kind of like big tech, big media, and the government. And they work together, right? To protect themselves. And it oppresses the people. But there's something subtle that God has written into the fabric of life, and I love this, that actually beautifully works against this. They don't even know it. They're not even thinking about this. It's often, um, you can often see this because powerful people They have stomachs just like everyone else that needs food. And therefore, they're dependent upon the lower class and the needy people to keep everything going for them. That's interesting. Because it's God's way of keeping powerful, wicked people in check, and they can't do anything about it. That's what Solomon says there in uh, uh, verse 8 and 9. They need everyone else in the world to survive. And then in verses 10 through 17, that's the last part there of chapter 5 specifically. 
though Solomon realizes that powerful people have lots of money and, and lots of wealth, he says money just doesn't satisfy. In fact, when you get rich, people begin to flock around you. The paparazzi starts showing up. People want to know you. People want to be your friend when you have lots of money. They want your money. So in fact, poor people, he says, sleep better than rich people. Because even if the poor person is hungry when going to bed, he sleeps better than the rich person because the rich person worries about his money and whether someone's going to come in and break in in the middle of the night and steal his money. Money is a cruel master when you have lots of it. It promises so much good, but it usually destroys the lives of those who possess much of it. Solomon even observes a man who gained so much money and power, and then he lost all that money through a bad investment. And then his son doesn't have an inheritance anymore. And so his son is going to live the rest of his days in cold, darkness, poor, and sad. Money then, he's saying, is very fleeting and deceptive. It can be stolen in a moment. It doesn't satisfy. And even if you attain much wealth in this world at some point, there's no guarantee that it's not going to be stolen from you. And so then Solomon brings us to a third big conclusion. His third big conclusion in the chiasm of Ecclesiastes as he wraps up chapter 5. And uh, we can look at that here in verse 18. 18 through 20 is the end here of chapter 5. Behold, Uh, behold in scripture is like, look at this, check this out. What I have seen is good, and that which is beautiful is to eat and to drink and to see good in one's labor, which he is laboring under the sun according to the number of the years of his life, which God has given to him for that is his portion. In other words, that's what he gets in life. That's all he gets. Even every man... Uh, whom God has given to him wealth and possessions, and he has given him the right to eat from it and to lift up his portion and to rejoice in his labor. This is a gift from God, for he will not remember the days of his life very much because God is keeping him occupied with the gladness of his heart. And there it is again. Eat. Drink and enjoy. Another conclusion, yeah? He recaps his previous conclusions, but he's also adding something here as well. He's learned through his investigation that not everyone has great lives. Yeah, he experienced the ups and the downs, and then some of them experience a lot of downs. There's a lot of people that suffer out there. And so Solomon concludes, enjoy what you can from the joys that you do have in life. Maximize them because they might be few and far between. But if they are few, enjoy them even all the more because they're few. And those may be the only ones that you get in life. In fact, it's good that you enjoy them because it helps distract you from the shortness of your life. That's a very interesting idea. The joy in your life helps distract you from the impending death that is coming upon you at some point. We were traveling during Christmas and we were in another home that wasn't ours here just a few weeks ago. And we sent our little puppy buttermilk outside. There she is again. And 
we needed to keep her occupied because we were going to go out and about and she would bark incessantly if she was just by herself outside, which she loves to do. And it's hilarious. So we gave her some food with some dog treats in it, right, to kind of occupy her. And then we have one of those toys where you can, like, stuff peanut butter inside of it. And then, man, she just goes to town on that forever, which is great. And I think you can successfully, uh, you can say that we successfully distracted our puppy for quite some time to the point where she wasn't too much of a nuisance while we were gone. She wasn't too concerned about being outside, being alone, or barking at neighbors and so forth. And I think in a similar way, Solomon's saying... That God gives us things in life to, for us to enjoy them, to keep us distracted from brooding about the day of our coming death. God gives us joy in life to distract us from brooding about the shortness of our life. Because one day you may realize your life is almost over and perhaps you never took time to really be thankful for it and to enjoy it. And that's chapter 5. That's chapter 5. Waiting on God. Because we can't control our destiny. We can't. We can't control God. He must act. He must speak. Rulers, money, yeah, they're powerful, but they can't save you. They can turn on you. Only God has all the power, so fear Him, wait for Him, and as much as God has given you to enjoy, enjoy it, because life is full of hardship and suffering. And so now with the limited amount of time that we have left, we're going to breeze through chapter 6, it's short, and then we're going to get to perhaps one of the most important chapters in all of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. Okay, so chapter 6, let's look at chapter 6 unattainability unattainability and you will see what i mean by this in a moment but first in verses one through nine that's like most of the chapter verses one through nine solomon imagines a situation in which someone is given a lot of possessions this kind of sounds familiar given a lot of wealth given a lot of power but then he's not able to enjoy any of it because Someone comes, invades his property, and steals all of it right after he gets it. Like, well, that was kind of pointless. We got all that stuff, and then it got stolen. So then Solomon concludes, okay, so yeah, I just said, enjoy the good things that God has given you. They might be few and far between. Except what about these situations in which people are robbed, and they don't even get to enjoy it at all? What if they don't even, like, have any kind of resources to enjoy the things here and now. And so Solomon says in verse three, better is the baby who's lost in miscarriage than a person not able to enjoy these things. Wow. Why? Why would you say that Solomon? Why is it better for a baby who's lost in miscarriage? Because at least the baby lost in miscarriage didn't have to experience suffering, hardship and loss in life. At least he didn't have to experience those things. Oh, sorry. I think I forgot to put that picture up there. But there's a guy stealing all that wealth. (laughs) Solomon even says in verse 6 that even if a man lived a thousand years twice, like this guy. That's a thousand years twice. That's 2,000 years. That's like someone who's about ready to die now who lived back in Jesus' time. 
that's a long time. He says, even if someone could live that long of a time, but he's not able to enjoy his life, then there's really no point. We might as well just give up on life. And then he says, you know, there's this cyclical thing that happens. We eat to work and we work to eat. You get up in life, you're working hard, so that what? So that you may eat, right? So you can live and survive. And then when you eat, why are you sustaining yourself? So that you would work. And it's kind of just going in circles. Can you hear those circles again? It just never really stops. Why are we still working? It's just do the same thing over and over and over again, and neither the stomach nor the soul is satisfied in the end. So then in verses 10 through 12, it's very interesting. This is where he gets really insightful here in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 6. And you need to pay attention to these words. And you could read along with me here in verse 10. That which is already its name was called. This is an interesting verse in the Hebrew, but he says, and it is known that he is man or that it is man. And he is not able to contend with one who is mightier than him. Hmm. That sounds a little mysterious. Look at verse 11. For there are many words which multiply vanity. What is the profit for man? For who knows what is good for the man in life according to the number of the days of his life, of his vanity, that he may spend them as a shadow. For who will tell the man what shall come after him under the sun? Okay, so what is, what is Solomon saying here? In verse 10, Solomon saying, Every man's the same. We know his name. Man. Every man is human. No one's different. His name was already called in life. We've already heard. If someone else is born, we know he's just man. And they kind of are the same kind of person. And because of that, he's always been man. And no one is able to stand up and go to court with God because God is always way more powerful than man. All people for all history have been unable to plead their case with God. No one can match God. In other words, God is unattainable to man. There's no way that both can touch. And that's the point of chapter 6. It's unattainability. We cannot attain to God. And that may seem to you a little hopeless. No one can attain to God. But there's a great answer to this, and we're not going to get the full picture until we get to the end. So you're going to have to wait for that one. But let's continue into chapter 7. I know I went really quick through chapter 6, but just take away, this was about unattainability. And now we're going to talk about chapter 7, and it's all about character. It's all about character. Verse 1 of chapter 7. A good name is better than good oil. That's what it literally says. A good name is better than good oil. Now, this is a fun phrase in Hebrew. It literally says, Tov Shem Mishem and Tov. Tov Shem Mishem and Tov. It's, it's a play on words. It's actually a chiastic phrase that 
kind of has this rhythm to it. Tov Shem Mishem and Tov. So it's like a proverb. A good name is better than good ointment, good oil. It's intentionally poetic. And what's the second half of the verse there? And the day of one's death is better than the day in which he was born. Wow, that sounds really pessimistic, doesn't it? The day that he's born is not as good as the day he's, he dies. The day he dies is better than when he was born. We are talking about the Bible, right? That is in the Bible. Sure, that's in the Bible. Now, this is so important because Solomon is actually beginning to turn a corner in his thinking. He's actually beginning to turn a corner. And it's funny because chapter 7 is like this. It's a big turning point. And it reminds me, another Lord of the Rings illustration, of the movies of the, uh, in the Two Towers when uh, it's about as bleak as it can get. And uh, Frodo and Sam have been kidnapped. And Aragorn and Rohan are awaiting their fate as they're guarding Helm's Deep, right? And there's like 10,000 orcs surrounding, the, right? And they're about ready to get slaughtered by them or whatever. And then there's like this I don't know, it just came across this way to me when I first watched the films. There's this really unexpected, awesome scene with the hobbits, Merry and Pippin. You can barely see it up there. But they're riding that tree and Treebeard. And Treebeard sees the wasteland of all of the trees that are destroyed by Saruman. And he's like, okay, that's it. We're going to go to war. And you just didn't expect that the trees necessarily would actually go to war. I love that scene because it's kind of a turning point to the entire, like all the three films. And then it's like right after that moment, everything begins to change. Gandalf finally arrives at Helm's Deep with all the reinforcements. They descend down the mountain, right? And they slaughter all the orcs. But then it's really like encapsulated perfectly by what Sam says at the end of the film. And I love this and I love it so much. I'm going to have to read this to you because it's really cool and it really fits well here. He says, it's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How can the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But it's just a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. And that day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. I love those words because that's what's happening in Ecclesiastes as we enter into chapter 7. It's amazing. The sun is beginning to shine in this dark, dark book. And that's why it's not pessimistic when Solomon says that the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth because Solomon is thinking all about character. He's thinking all about character. Death is teaches you character. Life doesn't. Life doesn't teach you character, but death does. So he's actually finding good even in disaster. To have character is better than to look good. It's better than to smell good. It's better than to appear cool and trendy. Just listen to what Solomon says in verse 2. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. 
because that is the end of every man and the living take it to heart. There you hear it. The living, if they are wise and they pay attention, they will learn much when they go to the house of mourning. But nobody learns much when they go and have parties and they go to the house of feasting. You don't learn godly character when you go to parties. You learn it when you go to funerals. You learn it when you go to funerals. You don't learn it when you go to somebody's birthday party or when you play video games or you enjoy time with your friends. And all of those things are good. It's not like they're bad. Nothing sinful about any of those things. And we should all enjoy those things. But he's saying you don't learn godly character from them. But you do learn character when you suffer hardship and loss. And that's why it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. That's why it's the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Because if you're willing, you will take it to heart and you'll learn something from that than you would have in any other good situation in life. Solomon also says that stress is better than laughter in verse 3. Stress, vexation. There's that word vexation again. But stress is is basically the idea. Stress is better than laughter because it teaches you character. You can be stressed and troubled on your face, he says, but you can be joyful in your heart. So that tells you that character goes deeper than just the physical appearance. It actually goes to the core of who you are. It's also better in verse 5 to listen to the rebuke of someone else who loves you, than to listen to the songs of fools. It's better to listen to rebuke than to listen to the songs of fools. How popular music is today in our culture, isn't it? I mean, just see kids that got their earbuds in all the time. They're just walking around, right? They got the hood up. They're just walking around like this, right? It's like, like what they do all the time. A lot of people listen to music to escape reality. They, they listen to music to escape reality. To escape hardship, Solomon says, don't avoid hardship. Don't avoid reality. Learn from it. Learn from it. Even take a rebuke. A rebuke can even be better for you than music. Actually, Solomon's saying it is better for you than music. Laughter doesn't satisfy either. Verse 6. It's like using thorns in a fire. Have you ever thrown thorn bushes or thorns into a fire? It pops and crackles. Really, It's really fun. It's kind of exciting. It's kind of like little firecrackers. It's popping up all over the place. But it doesn't cook your food. It doesn't last at all. It pops and crackles for a little bit, and then it just kind of fades away. Thorns in a fire don't last long enough to sustain the fire. You need thick logs to sustain a fire. Laughter is like thorns. It's like thorns in a fire. You can't do much with that. You can't do much with thorns in a fire. Character, though, those are the thick logs. Those are the logs that keep the fire going for a long time. That's what keeps you warm. That's what cooks your food. And that's also why in verse 8, he says, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. The end of a matter is better than its beginning because you have to be patient all the way through from beginning to end to finally see the full outcome. And that's what character takes. 
patience. It takes patience. Be patient and you will find character in the end. When times get hard, like in verse 10, oh, this is so easy to do. I know I've done this many times. Times get hard and you start to reminisce about the former days long ago. Oh man, I wish these days were like the old days, the good old days. I wish these times were better like those times. But Solomon says, no, no, you're not thinking with wisdom when you say that. Because you're not valuing the good that you can get from the hard times today. And then look at verse 13. One of my favorite verses in Ecclesiastes. See the work of God. See the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? Who is able to straighten what he has bent? God bends things in your life. I love this because it's so counterintuitive. This is so the unexpected wisdom from Solomon. God bends things in your life. And when God bends something, you can't unbend it. Has he bent things in your life? Have you experienced hardship where you can't reverse it? Kind of reminds me of Thor's hammer, you know? No one can lift it but Thor, right? Oh, of course, someone who's worthy of it. I know, I can, I understand. The whole like debate, like if it's in an elevator and it's like, okay, whatever. (laughs) Elevator's lifting it. Okay. But that's the idea. No one can straighten what God has bent. No one can straighten it. You can't, God bends things in your life. He will. If he hasn't bent it a lot yet, he will. Just wait. He will. He'll bend things. And then you're going to want to straighten it back out. But God's doing something really important in your life because he's building character into you. He's building character. That's why in verse 14, he says, when times are good, enjoy it. Enjoy it when times are good. That's good. That's that's what I've been saying the whole time, Solomon says. But when times are bad, I want you to remember this. God made both the good times and the bad times. He also is the one that bent it out of place. He didn't just straighten things in your life. He also is the one that bends them. And you need to take advantage of those times to learn godly character. Remember, this was actually something that he said earlier in chapter 3. Why is God hiding his plan from you? Why is God hiding his plan from you? Because in verse 14, he says this. This is so interesting. God brings both good and bad into your life. And at the end of verse 14, he says, so that you won't figure out what God is doing in his grand plan. That's what it says at the end of verse 14. So that you won't figure it out. That's why God is bending things in your life. Why? Well, we saw that in chapter three. He's intentionally being unpredictable so that you will be forced to wait for him and wait on him. So that you will be forced to treat him like God. So that you will be forced to fear him. And that's why in verse 18, Solomon reaches the peak of the book where he makes another call to fear God in verse 18. And that's the climax of the book, I would argue. I think this is the climax of the book. We're right in the middle of it right now. That's the center. 
And at the center, we hear the main theme, fear God, in verse 18. For the one who fears God comes away with both of them. That's what it says there in verse 18. Now, I haven't really communicated what verses 15 through 17 talk about yet. I haven't said that. But I do want you to look at verse 16 for a moment. I want you to read this with me. Verse 16. Do not be excessively righteous. Do not be overly wise. Why ruin yourself? Wait a minute. We are looking at the Bible, right? Why is that in the Bible? Don't be excessively righteous. Don't be overly wise. Why would Solomon say that? This is the unexpected wisdom from Solomon as well. And we'll have to find the answer to that tonight. So to be continued. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wisdom. It's unexpected at times. And I think in Ecclesiastes, perhaps we see some of the most unexpected wisdom of all. We see, even as we end this morning, and we'll see later tonight, the righteous suffer. And the wicked prolong their lives. And Solomon advises, don't be excessively righteous. Don't be overly wise. This is unexpected to us. It's also difficult to fully understand why you would not want us to know all of your plans. Why you have intentionally built circles into life that go endlessly around and around. So that we will not be able to know what is going to happen next. But we have seen some instructive things today that it creates hardship in our lives so that it may build character into us. And that's far more valuable than good times, far more valuable than passing joys and pleasures of this world. And it's aiming us to the final conclusion which we will talk about later tonight. Lord God, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to know these things, to embrace them, to know what we can learn. And when you bring hardship into our lives, help us, we pray, to take advantage of those times, to learn what you have to give to us, because we know both the good times and the difficult times come from you. And Lord God, that's comforting to know that you are sovereign and you are on your throne and you are in control of everything in our lives. And we thank you for that. And we want to praise you for that. And we pray that as we wrap up even this evening, that we would come away with great joy because Ecclesiastes is really ultimately finding joy in great hardship. And we need that today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.